remember a few years ago when our daughter was being baptized, Rich Lambert was senior pastor at that time, and I think she cried throughout the entire baptismal service. And he turned around and said to everyone, well, that's how we all come into the kingdom, isn't it? Crying, but loved by the Savior into his arms anyway. Well, it was about a year ago that our brand new senior pastor, Colin Peters, was in the pulpit every week. He was preaching to us from the scriptures what the church is and what its mission is. And it's good and helpful and reorienting from time to time to revisit these things, which is exactly what the Holy Spirit does for us through the Apostle John and the 21st chapter, the last chapter of his gospel, which is where we're going to be this morning. Young Christians, young theologians, let me start with you and just tell you this. There's a lot of symbols in the passage that we're going to read this morning. And I want you to think about what some of the meanings are to three symbols in this passage. There's a lot of symbols. You could, you could look for more than three. But I'm just going to ask you and challenge you to look for these three. What is the meaning to these three symbols in the passage? The fish, the net, and then also the bread that Jesus gives to the disciples. The fish, the net, and the bread. Because this is the good news of Christ's creation of a people for himself. A people that he is feeding and growing and sustaining. That we, like him, might also love his church more than we love ourselves. And it's found in John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. 
This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciples, the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. And yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, and were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning, people that, although redeemed by you, have fickle hearts, hearts that are easily drawn away to other loves, to other loves besides you and the things that you have given to us to represent you, hearts that are easily led astray even from loving your own people. This is who we are, and you know that. You know that we are but dust, and so we ask and pray that through your word and through your gospel, Through the reminder of your calling upon us through the baptism we just heard, that you would call us again to remember who we are as your people and what it is that you have called us to do. To remember again your gospel, the washing and the cleansing and the renewing that baptism pictures for us, the cleansing of Jesus' blood because of his death and resurrection. And we ask that you would do these things for us through your word again this morning. In the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Well, for centuries, it's been said at the end of every wedding ceremony. It comes from the lips of Jesus. That's where it starts in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, where Jesus says, Let no one put asunder. Let no one take apart what God has joined together. And of course, in its context, it refers to a husband and a wife refers to a relationship built on the most intimate of bonds, a union of wills and hearts and bodies and life directions 
sealed with strong words and vows, sealed with external signs like gold rings. And yet it's a union with someone that is going to frustrate you, to hurt you, to anger you more than you've been angry at anyone else. Someone who is fundamentally going to change what you thought marriage was supposed to be all about. Because you, like me and every other married person deep down, thought that marriage was going to be about you. You came into it ready to give yourself completely because of what you thought you were going to get in return. A successful person on your arm whose occupation and character would guarantee you security and safety and provision and dependability and a stable presence. Or maybe an attractive person on your arm who would satisfy your sexual desires, who would be a companion in your seeking of adventure, helping you to make a mark on the world, but who wouldn't seek to crowd your freedom as you pursue your hobbies and your interests and your dreams for an upward-moving occupation. Christian marriage if we submit to God's program of sanctification in our lives, and that can be a big if. But Christian marriage reveals how much we were really coming into the relationship like it was a contract. But it also changes us into seeing more and more as we stay in it that it's actually a covenant. It teaches us that meaning and purpose, and significance, and the satisfaction of our longings are not found in what we get out of marriage. But instead, it teaches us that these things are found only in Christ as we learn to love the other more than we love ourselves. And it is this same gospel that Jesus wants us to learn about His marriage to the church, and therefore our relationships to the church. And to do this, the Apostle John gives us a fishing story, a dinner party, and an uncomfortable conversation to remind us of the union that Christ has with His church and the union Christ wants us to have with His church, a union that no one can put asunder. The first picture of union that we have before us here is the union that Jesus has with His Word, which is His preached, His proclaimed gospel, and the union that Jesus has with His sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And to do this, the Apostle John gives us a fishing story. The Gospel of John, indeed all of John's writings, are filled with rich symbolism and allegory and word pictures. Probably more than any other New Testament books, actually. And the fishing story and the first paragraphs of this chapter is no different. The disciples go out to fish. And although they float around the Sea of Galilee all night, they catch nothing. Tremendous effort and loss of sleep for nothing. The physical nighttime around them pictures the darkness felt and failure. But then the dawn comes. 
And with the dawn of the sun stands the divine son, Jesus, on the shore. And he gives them his miraculous spoken word, a command to cast their net on the other side. And the disciples immediately do so. And we see that Jesus' word has the power to give faith and to give motivation and strength to obey him. And as the disciples trust Jesus, their net becomes so full of fish that they can't haul it in. And what's the response of the disciple whom Jesus loved? Well, it's, it's the response that we all have. When Jesus' proclaimed gospel penetrates the darkness of our sin and our circumstances and our failures and breathes new life into the tomb of our hearts, John, who's most assuredly the disciple whom Jesus loved, exclaims, It's the Lord! Only He could do this! And the disciples are brought to even greater faith and even greater assurance that it is the Lord. In verse 12, after coming to the dinner party, after eating a meal that every first century Christian hearing this story would automatically associate with the Lord's table, Jesus gives them bread. He also gives them fish, beginning with fish, actually, that they didn't catch but was already cooking for them when they got there. Jesus already had it. It's just like the miracle of the loaves and the fishes and the fish in John chapter 6. Because soon after that meal in the same chapter, Jesus begins speaking of the bread as his body. The disciples here don't need to ask Jesus who he is because as John tells us, Christ uses his meal and his word to reveal himself. In fact, in the first 14 verses of this chapter, the word reveal is used three times to bring our attention to one very focused point. The incarnate, now resurrected, and now ascended and glorified Christ will continue to reveal himself to his church and to the world through his word and through his sacrifice. So if we ask the question, what is the church? Well, the answer given to us here is that it's Christ's body on earth. It's His. He created it. He catches the fish. And He continues to expand it. And He continues to sustain it. How? Through His preached gospel and through His sacraments. And so we must make sure that this is what we are giving people. Word and sacrament. This is what the church has to offer. And this is always what the church has had to offer the world. And when anything else gets in the way of these things, we're failing to walk in the mission that we've been given. Isn't it interesting that Jesus hasn't given us a building yet? I mean, He's given us this building to meet in every week, which is actually quite a blessing. A lot of new churches without a building would kill to meet in here on Sunday mornings, actually. Does it frustrate you that we don't have a building of our own yet? 
It frustrates me often. In fact, I really know very few people in our church right now that aren't frustrated on one level or another by this. But maybe one thing, as we submit to God's sovereignty in our lives corporately in this area, maybe one thing Jesus is preaching to our oversized culture that's fascinated and mesmerized by the trappings of success, oversized churches and oversized budgets and oversized buildings and oversized programs and oversized attendance is that the church really isn't about any of those things. And it never has been. Those things may be very American, even very Texan, and very appealing to the consumer, but there's nothing distinctively Christian about them. And maybe Jesus wants to use this season of New St. Peter's life a season that's been going on from the beginning, has been going for a while, to preach this very significant message to the subculture in which we live. Maybe during this time that most of us hope will be shorter rather than longer, I'm in that camp, Jesus is saying in a very tangible way to our consumer Dallas culture, hey, do you want to find me? Do you want to continue to find me more and more? Then you must look for me in the preached, proclaimed, and announced gospel that tells of who I am and what I've done and what I've said. And you must look for me in my sacraments, my water and my bread and wine. Because, see, you cannot have... Jesus as primary and leave those things over there as secondary. If he is to be central to the life of our church and therefore central to the individual lives of our people, we cannot put those things asunder. Jesus tells us here that he is in his gospel, in his sacraments, and all those who will continue to find him must not look somewhere else as though he resides in something else. For a long time, and I'm not sure if it's still there anymore, but for a long time there was a billboard along 75 Central Expressway when you're heading south. It was a huge advertisement for a prominent church in town. And the advertisement was saying, finally, a church you can believe in. And we should be thinking... Since when was this the message of the church? Since when was this the message that Christians were given to take to the world? Because barely hidden and implicit behind the message of that billboard is the louder message saying, Hey, come check us out. Because we're confident that that when you do, you'll find us capable and accomplished and so ready to give you exactly what you think a church should be offering. In fact, we assume that you know best what a church should be offering, and whatever that is, we have it in spades. Put us to the test. And as consumeristic and kitschy 
and maybe unfair as that sounds, let's make it sound better. Since when was the church even given the slightly more noble message of, hey, come look at us. We live very moral lives. You'll never meet a group of nicer people. We've got wonderful marriages. We've got excellent parenting styles. We've got children so clean and shiny you can see your reflection in them. And our preachers, you wouldn't believe how eloquent and insightful and ruggedly handsome they are. (laughs) And because, I mean, I know that I'm preaching to the choir here, but sometimes the choir needs encouragement. Because as we all know, Jesus isn't going to have any of this. This is not the message of John 21. This isn't the perspective of the church Jesus gives to Peter here. What's the picture of the church we have in John 21? Well, the church is in a boat. It's in the middle of a lake, and it's led by professional, trained, paid fishermen who can't catch one fish. And so we're not encouraged whatsoever to look at the church at the beginning of John 21 led by the apostles, of whom none of us are, and then say, there's a church I can believe in. Instead, we have a Savior who shows up and says to them, throw the net on the other side. Trust me, because apart from me, you can't do anything. We see Jesus revealing Himself Not to Christians getting it right. Not to Christians busy in Bible study or prayer even. But to Christians disappointed in their failure. It's a story recapturing John 15 for us. He is the vine. We are the branches. Once again being reminded that apart from Him we can do nothing. And so the message of the church always has been and must always be, here's a Savior you can believe in. And He may not look like He has what you think you need, but you should trust Him to know what you need more than you do. Come and taste. See that He's good. That He knows deeper needs about you and in you than you even knew you had, and He's ready to meet them. Well, then comes the awkward conversation. Jesus asks a very penetrating question of Peter, beginning in verse 15, and he asks it three times. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these others love me? I think he asks the question this way because Peter had been so confident in himself before to boast that his love and his loyalty and his dedication to Jesus was beyond that of everybody else. That even if everyone else would fall away, he never would. He would die alongside Jesus if it came to that. And so Jesus says, Peter, are you still ready to say that you love me more than they do? And by this time, after his three denials of his Lord, 
Peter had enough self-knowledge and enough self-doubt and learned enough humility to say, I do love you, Lord. You know how much. You know all things. And then he stops at that. And Jesus responds, he responds with astonishing theology. In my view, the theology behind what Jesus now says to Peter is one of the most needed messages to be proclaimed and preached and heard and reheard and digested and chewed on and written about and lived out by the American church today. Because it confronts those things that are central to American culture and American values. Jesus says, if you love me, Peter, then guess what? I don't need your undying statements of loyalty spoken in moments of emotional highs. I don't need you to work harder and be better than the other disciples. I don't need you to be quicker to the right answers than they are. I don't need you to compete successfully with the other disciples, the other churches in the marketplace of the church hopping, church shopping industry, so that people will be more proud to wear your brand than they will the other church's brand down the street. I don't need what you think your individualism and capitalism brings to the table. You know what I do want, Peter? If you love me, I want you to feed my lambs. I want you to tend my sheep. I don't need you to win the world, Peter. I'll do that. I just want you to faithfully feed the little lambs that I bring to you, the fish that I catch, as I just did through you on the lake. And you will prove your love to me by loving them, just as I proved my love to my Father by obeying Him and loving those He entrusted to me, which includes you, Peter. And the flow of love in this story and throughout the gospel story is significant. The order matters, and we can't mix it up. It was in our reading this morning from Philippians 2 that Jim read earlier, love always, 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 always originates with God the Father who so loved the world and it flows through His Son who loves us with His deeds and words and it is then reflected back to Jesus and the Father but it is done so through acts and words of love for His people. By feeding his people word and sacrament and fellowship and prayer. This is the gospel flow of love. Always. So are you dry? Are you dry? Then don't seek to change your spouse or your children or your circumstance or your church to give you the love you need It doesn't originate with any of them. 
They can only be faithful reflectors, faithful conduits, faithful pipelines of love, but they can't produce it or manufacture it. It only comes from the one who so loved the world that he gave us his son so that by having been changed by the gospel, we might return his own love back to him by loving one another more than we love ourselves. This is always the order of the flow of love in Christianity. This is how we find the grace to feed Jesus' lambs, Jesus' people, and to do it when it's hard and difficult and exhausting and a test of our patience. Christ cannot be put asunder from His word and sacraments. And it cannot be put asunder from his sheep. And his blessings cannot be put asunder from his calling. The rest of Jesus' words to Peter and the rest of this chapter speak to this. Peter was going to love the church more than himself by ultimately giving his life in martyrdom for her. As early church tradition tells us that in in the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy here, Peter was crucified upside down in Rome, probably within only a couple years of the Apostle Paul's martyrdom, which was also in Rome. And Augustine, the early church theologian, says about Peter here that Peter would do, when strengthened by Jesus' resurrection, what in Peter's weakness he had promised prematurely. In Christ's foretelling of Peter's death, he was promising that Peter would actually do what he so brashly committed himself to doing before Jesus' own suffering, which was to die for Christ. Because Christ had suffered and been resurrected, Peter would be so enabled by the grace of this power to do the same. The blessing of this grace came through Christ's obedience to the calling given to him by the Father But the Apostle John's calling in this chapter is going to be different than Peter's. You can still see Peter's desire to compare, to compete, wondering and asking what kind of deal John was going to get. And Jesus says, mind your own business, Peter. Mind your own calling. Follow me. And in fact, Jesus was going to have different callings for all of his disciples, different stories to tell in each one of their lives, just as he does for all of us. Thomas, the doubter, Nathaniel, the brash and the unapologetic straight shooter, James and John, the judgmental fire eaters, the two others that we don't know about. All of this points to a similar conclusion that the church is made up of all these types and more because the church has always been. And the way that Jesus chooses to work not only through his disciples but in his disciples is by giving them the grace to stay committed to their callings, the ministries already right in front of them and the ministries he will give them later. About a year And a half ago, I was having lunch with a guy named Eric. Eric's not actually his real name. I'm just making sure he stays safe in the pastoral sermon illustration witness protection program. (laughs) 
And Eric was at a place that probably just about everyone in this room has found themselves. He was faithfully attending two churches. And ours was one of them. And he was rightfully feeling angst about that and rightfully wanting to maximize that faithfulness to just one church. It was good that he wanted to do that, wanted to talk about that. And as we talked together, we realized something about ourselves, both of us, because I'm in Eric's boat too. He wanted to see what each church was offering to see if he liked the menu enough, the product list, and then decide to sign on the dotted line after that. Which is kind of what we like to do about, with marriage in this culture as well. And the problem with making a church your home this way is that your commitment to the church will only always be as strong as the product list. It will only ever be as strong as the menu items. And this misses the point of what Jesus is saying here in this passage. Jesus is saying to Peter and saying to us that commitment to him and his church, it isn't a decision made after surveying all the product offerings. It is made up front. Loving commitment to his people is a means of grace. It is one of the chief ways that God works sanctification in us. And we want it the other way around. We want to make sure that sanctification is happening in us first, the way that we want it, and the flavors that we like, and then we'll commit. And Jesus goes, no, that's, that's not the way I work. Do you love me? If you do, it's because I loved you first. And now you will first love my people. The way I first love you. And by first loving my people, not loving them as a byproduct of what you're getting, but loving them first, up front, I'm going to use this love, this commitment, to change you to sanctify you, and to make you like me. Because you can't have me over here for yourself, Jesus says, and leave my church over there. You cannot put them asunder. I and my church are one. We're a package deal. And you cannot think that I'm on your side while you're against her. And as we talked it out, it became clear that he was ready to commit to one church. It was a long conversation I had over many weeks. And I wish it had been ours. Of course I do. But it wasn't. And that's all right. But I'm much more happy knowing that he's faithfully committed to being fed, and to being shepherded, and doing some feeding of Jesus' lambs himself at the same church a church that he's still a part of today, I believe. Because Jesus is using Eric's commitment to a broken and frustrating church, as all churches are, as a means of grace to sanctify Eric. And that's encouraging. Jesus reveals our own consumerism to us so that he can cleanse it and replace it with self-giving love. Just as he reminded Peter of his sin in this passage, so that Peter could see even better Jesus' grace restoring him to fellowship and ministry. 
Because you know the sight of that charcoal fire on the beach probably awoke terrible memories in the mind of Peter, who denied his Lord beside a charcoal fire only three chapters ago. Because we do a lot of unthinkable things when we're seeking comfort and warmth and self-protection and better products above all else. As Bono and his band say, I reached up and felt the hand of the devil and it was warm in the night. And so Jesus recasts the same scene of the charcoal fire. Not to shame Peter at all but to redeem it, to heal and restore him. There's no accusation. Only the food that Jesus gives to him. There are no denials. Why? Because Peter's more committed now? No. But because Jesus had died and risen again and had forgiven Peter and given to him a new heart. And so Peter's last recorded words with Jesus were not, I don't know the man, I don't know the man, I don't know the man. But instead, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. You know that I love you. And there's only one reason why I could. Because you loved me first. Jesus does the same for us through his word and his sacraments and the callings that he extends to us to feed his sheep. And in these things we find him because we cannot put them asunder. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we are your people and we are your people by your sovereign choice. You have caught us in your net of love. And the net that is the church the net that will not break, the net of your grace. And we thank you, Father, that ultimately you are building your church. You're building your church across the world. You're building it in places where it looks like it's struggling and dying and hurting, in places where it's clearly bleeding. You are growing. You are doing what you've always done, using the blood of even martyrs to water your fields, to grow your church. And you're growing it in very comfortable cities like where we live. And you're growing it in our church. You're growing your gospel in us. You're growing us to maturity. We know this because you promised to do so. We know this because you've given us your word, your gospel, your sacraments, prayer and fellowship, and all your means of grace. We thank you that those things are here. We pray that you would continue to fan them aflame in us that you would continue to grow us in all the ways that we need growth, many of those being ways we don't even know about, but you do. And so we pray and ask and trust that you'll do that in us as a people. We pray and ask that you'll do it in us corporately and individually. We pray that you do all these things for our good and ultimately for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.